The third scripture reading comes from the book of Mark, chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good evening. Good evening. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and I want to welcome you again to our Good Friday service tonight. I've preached a few sermons on Good Friday in my life, and I feel as though every time I preach a Good Friday sermon, the temptation for me is to dwell on the brutalities of the crucifixion, to to walk us through the, the torment, the anguish, and the humiliation of it all. I, I want to paint a picture of our tortured Lord upon the cross and say to you, behold the cross. Isn't it awful? Jesus went through all of this for you. <clears throat> See the nails driven into flesh. Smell the blood, hear the screams. How savage, this Roman instrument of torture. How horrific, this death. I, I, I kind of want to press your noses against the glass and, so that you can see Jesus dying up close. The temptation for me is to emphasize the physical, the, the psychological, and the emotional terrors that went into Jesus' death. And I don't think that that would be inappropriate on this day especially to highlight. Right? A lot of pastors do that. And the movies certainly do this. Graphic images of torture meant to shock us and make us pity Jesus. Very powerful stuff. But it's interesting, when we look at the crucifixion accounts in the four Gospels, what stands out is the complete lack of detail concerning the actual crucifixion. Each of the gospel writers, they, they simply comment, and they crucified him. They don't dwell on the scourging. They don't dwell on the nails and the blood and the tears. And I think part of this is because the early Christians, they were all familiar with crucifixions, right? Crucifixions were deliberately very public spectacles. They were designed to be this visceral and this grotesque warning for everyone. If a picture is worth a thousand words, then the early Christians, they all had a picture 
of men hanging from crosses indelibly printed on their minds. So there was no need to belabor the details because everyone already was familiar with them. But I think another reason for this is, and, I, and Pastor Aaron kind of introduced the ser service with this, the death of Jesus was so much more than an ordinary crucifixion. And if you focus only on the physical death, well, you might as well be talking about the two thieves who were crucified with Jesus. And it's interesting that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all mention this one event. At the very moment of Jesus' death, the person standing closest to him, the Roman centurion, he confesses, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, everyone, I just said, was familiar with the crucifixion, but none as much as this man. The centurion, he, he wasn't merely familiar with crucifixions, but he was the expert. Remember, this was a high-profile crucifixion, and he was tasked to supervise it. Nobody was more acquainted than he was with this form of torture. Nobody had more experience. His whole livelihood was combat. His expertise was bringing death. And he witnesses Jesus' crucifixion from the very front row. And Mark tells us that the centurion, he stood facing Jesus. He was right there, up close. He sees Jesus take his last breath. He sees Jesus die, and he is amazed. This was unlike anything that he had ever seen. What was it about this crucifixion that could make a hardened, battle-worn, desensitized, and skeptical centurion exclaim, truly, this man was no ordinary man, but he must be the Son of God. I want to highlight this evening three ways in which the death of Jesus Christ was utterly unique and so far beyond what we will ever begin to comprehend. I want to talk about a cup, a cry, and a comfort. More specifically, the cup of wrath, the cry from the cross, and the comfort for you and me. A cup, a cry, and a comfort. First, a cup. You know, throughout the gospel accounts, we see Jesus go through the entire gamut of human emotion, don't we? You ever wonder, what was Jesus like day to day? What was his general demeanor? You know, Charles Spurgeon, the, the prince of preachers, he once said that there's nothing in Jesus to suggest that he was anything other than a joyful, a jovial man who got angry at the appropriate moments, but in large part, he was a man whose life was filled with the blessing of God but on the other hand, we also call him the man of sorrows. You remember John chapter 2? We see a joyful Jesus providing amazing wine at a wedding. We see a loving Jesus who looks upon people and crowds with compassion and love. We see a calm Jesus 
walking on water in the midst of a storm, terrifying his disciples. We see an exasperated Jesus who gets frustrated with, with the lack of faith in his friends. He rebukes the storm, remember. And we see an angry Jesus turning tables over, single-handedly driving out, clearing out the temple. And on the cross, we see a suffering Jesus screaming in agony and pain. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see a side of Jesus that we don't see anywhere else. We see a desperate and terrified Jesus who trembles in fear. This happens on a Thursday night. Jesus eats his last supper with his disciples, 12 disciples. Judas departs, and Jesus leads the remaining 11 to the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a place where they often went to pray. Jesus knows that Judas will betray him here. And this is it. This is where the events that lead to his death begin to unfold. Jesus' steps, they're ordered. His descent into the grave begins. And in our passage today from Mark 14, Jesus enters into the Garden of Gethsemane with 11 disciples. And he tells his disciples to sit while he prays, and he moves a short distance into the garden, about a stone's throw, so from about the stage to the back of the room. Only a short way. And he takes with him his closest three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And something happens to Jesus. Verse 33, And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. It says he began. Something happens in that moment. Something changes. Something comes over Jesus. What? It says he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And it, it doesn't translate well in the English, but in the Greek word, that word for greatly distressed, it connotes horror of great darkness. Something terrible, a terror falls upon Jesus, a horror. And he tells his three disciples, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And again, the English translation, it doesn't do Jesus' words justice. He says, very sorrowful, sorrowful to the point of death. And what Jesus is saying here is this, I don't, I don't think I, I'm going to make it. I... I don't think I can do this. Jesus is staggering here. And we see something that we've never seen in Jesus before, uncertainty. And this is perhaps Jesus at his most vulnerable moment in his life. You see, when he's crucified, he certainly is at his weakest, but at the cross, Jesus is resolute. Jesus is determined. He doesn't waver like he seems to be wavering here. And as he dies, he's in agony, he's in pain, he's in grief, but here he exhibits fear. What happens in this moment to make Jesus so afraid? 
he asks his disciples, stay here, watch. And he goes a little further on his own, and he staggers, and he collapses to the ground. And on the ground, he prays. Jesus began the evening with his 12 disciples, his closest friends. And as the evening continues, 12 becomes 11. 11 becomes 3. And here in Gethsemane, he leaves the three, and in desperation and panic, he falls prostrate to the ground in prayer, reaching out to his Father. And he prays about the cup. Verse 36, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus does what he always did in the garden. He seeks the face of his Father in prayer. But this time, what's different is that the Father hides his face. Jesus calls out for intimacy, and he receives only cold silence. The Father does not answer. And this is what Jesus can't bear. It's not the betrayal of Judas. It's not the failure of his disciples. It's not the forthcoming denials of Peter. It's not even the the tortures of the cross. The thing that Jesus wants to pass from him, if possible, it's the broken fellowship. It's the severed relationship. It's the lack of communion with his father. This is what's unbearable to Jesus. This is the first time in all of eternity where there is no fellowship, no communion, no relationship, no intimacy between father and son. And Jesus tries to get there. He cries out, Abba, Father. Abba, it's a term of intimacy. It's it's like Daddy or Papa. And this is what a child would call his father. Jesus is pleading. He's begging. Don't leave me. And for the first time ever, Jesus feels this, this profound aloneness. And he's desperate. He returns to his disciples, hoping that that they might provide a little bit of comfort for him. And he finds them asleep. And he shakes them awake, and he begs them to watch, pray for me. And then he returns to pray, and he prays the same words. And again, there is no answer. Jesus, in this moment, he has no friends. And no father. We see the son's fear. But you know what? We can only imagine the father's anguish. To see his son pleading and calling out to him, what must it have been like for the father to not respond? You know, in Luke's version of the same event, an angel appears in the garden to to strengthen and to comfort Jesus. And it's as though the father, he he can't bear to leave his son in desperation. So while he doesn't respond, he can't help but to send an angel to his son to help, to strengthen him. But what does this accomplish? As soon as the angel shows up, it says in verse 44 in Luke 22, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. 
and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The angel is no replacement for the father. As soon as the angel shows up, Jesus prays even more intensely and desperately, so much so that blood seeps out from his pores and falls to the ground. What is in the cup? The cup that Jesus prays about, it is the cup of God's wrath that Isaiah, that Jeremiah, that the Psalms tell us about. And Jesus, for the first time, he is seeing that cup up close. And he can't bear the thought of drinking it. Jesus is staring into hell, and he's feeling its darkness. And just the smell of it, just the slightest taste of it, it's enough to send Jesus reeling. This is why the death of Jesus, it's so much more than a crucifixion. You know, many people throughout history have been crucified. They've experienced the, the physical brutalities of a crucifixion and, and perhaps even more intensely than Jesus did. But only one man, the man of sorrows, the Son of God, ever drank the cup of God's perfect wrath. Don't we often talk about the perfect love of God? But if you think about it, God is also perfect in his wrath. That's a very serious thing to consider. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, three times Jesus prays to have the cup pass from him. He goes back and forth between his disciples and prayer, but he finds no comfort anywhere. And even in his desperate prayers for another way, is there another way? Jesus submits to the Father. He never once falters in his obedience. He, he never doubts his Father. He never ceases to trust in his Father. He prays, not my will, but what you will. Jesus obeys, and he sets his face to the cross, and he never looks back as he drinks the cup to the bitter dregs, as he descends completely into hell, upon the cross. After this, Jesus is betrayed. He's arrested and he's tried. He's beaten. He's mocked. He's whipped. He stumbles carrying his cross to Golgotha. And upon that hill, Jesus is crucified between two thieves. He's crucified at the third hour, Mark tells us, which is about 9 a.m., and for three hours, from 9 a.m. to about noon, Jesus is mocked mercilessly. Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come on down. The chief priests, the scribes, they mocked him to one another. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And Mark tells us that even the thieves who were crucified with him, they also mocked him relentlessly. And according to the gospel writers, for those three hours, Jesus spoke at least three times. And then at noon, 
something happens. After three hours, something miraculous happens. A darkness descends upon the whole land. It becomes midnight at midday. And this isn't a natural darkness. It wasn't caused by a solar eclipse or or a prolonged desert storm. This is a supernatural darkness. It's the darkness of judgment. It's the darkness of the curse. And remember that Jesus is crucified during the Passover. Do you remember what the Passover is all about? God frees his people from slavery in Egypt, and he sends ten plagues of judgment upon Egypt. The ninth plague was complete pitch darkness over the land of Egypt for three days. Darkness, it precedes the tenth plague. The tenth plague, what was the tenth plague? The firstborn in every Egyptian house is killed. At the cross, darkness descends upon the entire land for three hours. Right before, not the firstborn in an Egyptian house, but God's own firstborn dies. So from the sixth hour, about noon, till about the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., for those three hours, it is pitch black. No words spoken. Silence. And you can imagine the confusion of the crowd. They stop their insults because something is happening that they don't understand. They stand there in darkness for three hours. And in those hours, Jesus suffers the agonies, the torments of hell. He bears the wrath of God. He drinks the cup to the very bottom. I love how Spurgeon puts it. He says, he drank damnation dry. Jesus descends into the hell that you and I deserve. He has made a curse for us. And there in the darkness, Jesus hangs in silence and judgment. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From the depths of darkness, from the depths of hell, Jesus cries out to the very God who has forsaken him. Do you remember how this whole story began? Genesis 1, we see creation. How was the world created? It is dark. God speaks into the darkness and brings forth the light. This same God upon the cross, once again, he speaks into the darkness and he brings forth light. Light. When Jesus cries this cry, the darkness lifts. The shadows flee. The light shines through the darkness. And even here in the valley of the shadow of death, something new is happening. A new creation is beginning. Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry 
and breathed his last. Jesus dies, not with a whimper, but with a shout. He cries out with a loud voice, even in his moment of greatest weakness, there is strength in Jesus still. His life wasn't taken from him, but he gives his life with a shout. And the moment he breathes his last breath, the curtain in the temple, which separated man from God, is torn from top to bottom, this heavy curtain about a hand thick. You see, under the Old Covenant, in the, in the Old Testament, only the high priest could enter into the holy place through the curtain. And he could only do so about once a year after many washings and sacrifices were made. But this great barrier is torn from top to bottom because Jesus is now the curtain through which we enter into the presence of God. His body is the curtain. He is the veil. He is the new way to the Father. My last point is the comfort that the cross gives to us. You know, on the one hand, the cross is the greatest injustice that the world has ever seen. Right? How do we evaluate injustice? What makes one act more unjust than another? What makes one act more despicable, more evil, more wretched? Well, the more innocent the victim, the more heinous the crime. It's more tragic when an innocent child dies versus a hardened criminal. And then there's also the power dynamics, right? When the strong prey on the weak or the helpless, we see that as a grave injustice. So the bigger the power discrepancy, the more unjust an act is. Well, at the cross, we have the brutal execution of the most innocent person who has ever lived. Jesus the Son of God, he makes himself nothing, a servant. And the perfect wrath of God is unleashed upon him. He is truly the man of sorrows, the suffering servant. The cross was simultaneously the most horrible thing that ever happened, but also the most beautiful thing to ever happen. And I think one thing the cross does is this. It shows us the horror of our sins. You know, sin is not minor infractions of rules. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is not moral weakness. It's not some moral deficiency. Sin is so serious that it merits the total wrath of God. It is cosmic treason against the King of Kings. You know, in Revelation 21, we see a glimpse of the end. We see the holy city, radiant and glorious. There's no sun or moon because God himself and the Lamb are there. There's no darkness there. There's no night forever. And here's what it says. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I want to ask you a question this evening. Are you pure enough to enter that city. How pure are your thoughts? Have you ever done anything shameful? 
Something you don't want anyone else to know about? How about deceitful? Have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? I don't know about you, but I have. And what that means is I don't have any right to enter into that eternal city because I am not pure. I am unfit. Instead, I deserve to spend all of eternity drinking the cup of God's wrath. The cup that terrified Jesus is the cup that I deserve. Unless, somehow, my name is written in the Lamb's book. Unless on the cross, Jesus drank my damnation dry. You know, as Jesus stands trial before Pilate, Pontius Pilate, he had a custom where every year during the Jewish feast, he would release one prisoner. And he did this to kind of curry favor with the Jews. And the Jews come to Pilate again here in Mark 15, and they ask him, can you release a prisoner? And Pilate assumes that it's Jesus. But instead, they ask for someone else, a notorious murderer named Barabbas. And they cry for Jesus to be crucified. You know, when we picture the crucifixion in our minds, when we kind of place ourselves in the story, we often associate ourselves with the bystanders, with, with the crowd. We, we see ourselves more like the disciples or, or the women who watch in horror as their beloved Lord is executed. But in reality, if we are Christians, we are Barabbas in this story. Imagine Barabbas sitting there in his cell, guilty, condemned. The sentence of death hangs over his head. He knows that his fate is sealed. He's going to the cross. And perhaps he can hear the commotion outside. He can hear the crowd call out, crucify him. And he knows they're talking about me. The Roman soldiers come for him. They, they open up the door. They lead him out. But rather than leading him to Calvary, they escort him to his freedom. Why, Barabbas must have asked. The answer, because someone else will be crucified instead. Jesus, the King of the Jews. We go free because the cup that we deserved was emptied by another. So how will you respond on this Good Friday? There are four responses to the crucifixion that we see here. There are the Jews who watch it unfold and they remain skeptical to the end. The Pharisees and the scribes. And these Pharisees, they, they reduce relationship with God to doing good works, to obeying the law. But before we're too quick to condemn these Jews... I want to ask, do we ever do that? Do we ever do that? Is the Christian life for you about what you must do and what you cannot do? Yeah, you have to read the Bible. I have to pray. I have to go to church. I, I have to stop sinning so much. I, I can't go out as much. I can't have as much fun. I have to live a good life. 
Can I give you an example of why this approach doesn't work? Here's a hypothetical, okay? Imagine that you are a high school student and not a very good one. In fact, you're failing all of your classes. And I come along and I spend every day tutoring you. And guess what? I'm a really good tutor. I get your grades up. And with my help, you get a 1600 on your SATs. You get fives across the board on your AP exams. And I help you with your college applications. I, I even write your essay for you. And you get into the school of your dreams. And obviously, you can't afford that school. So what do I do? I pay every dime of your tuition, your room and board. And you find out later on that because I helped you and I paid for you, none of my kids did well or could afford to go to any college. Well, you graduate summa cum laude and you get the career that, that you, never, you could never even have hoped for. And I come to your graduation and you happen to be giving the commencement speech. And in that speech, you don't mention me. You don't thank me. In fact, you don't tell the world that you owe all of your success to me. Instead, you tell your peers that if they set their mind to it, they can achieve their dreams too. Hard work, determination, refusal to ever give up. And as you finish your speech and step down from the podium to a thunderous standing ovation, our eyes meet. And you give me a quick nod before going off to celebrate with your friends. Can you imagine how I feel in that moment? After sacrificing my sons for you? After everything that I've done? After pouring out my life for you, how dare you? How could you do this? When we make the relationship with God all about our own works, we profoundly offend God, who gave us everything we had. We can never step away from the cross. Every single day of our lives has to be lived at the foot of the cross. There is nothing that we do on our own. That's the first approach. Then there are the women who faithfully watch. They're unwilling to leave their Jesus. And these are women whom the world had dismissed and overlooked. But they found in Jesus a Savior who saw them, who knew them, who valued them, who loved them when no one else would. And then you have the centurion who lived a life of violence and brutality in allegiance to Rome. But he beholds the cross up close and he proclaims, this must be the Son of God. But as we read Mark's account, there is one glaring absence. The disciples are nowhere to be found. They have abandoned their Lord. And what's fascinating is that Mark was actually Peter's close friend. And, and the book of Mark, it was probably Peter's own version of the, the, the life of Jesus. 
And it's as though Peter tells Mark, hey, Mark, when you get to the part about Jesus' death, make sure you don't include us. What a tragedy that those who are closest to Jesus have abandoned the cross. As you behold the death of Jesus, how will you respond? Each of these four groups of people, they need the cross. Legalistic Jews, marginalized women, Gentile centurion, and yes, even the close disciples. The cross is needed for the unbeliever, but even if you've grown up in the church, even if you've been a follower of Jesus for many years, you need the cross every bit as much. Don't ever neglect the cross. It is everything for the Christian. Do not stray from the cross. And the comfort is that there is so much grace. God doesn't come to us even when we fail him and abandon him again and again, and he doesn't ask us, why have you forsaken me? Instead, he shows us his son who uttered this cry to his father so that we never have to worry about being forsaken by God. Even in Gethsemane, in his time of great desperation, the disciples can't even stay awake, but Jesus is still loving them and ministering to them. You will suffer in this life. You will go through trials. You will mourn. You will grieve. But you will never be forsaken. Ever. You will never be alone. And even when it feels like hell, it's not. It's not even close. You will never descend into hell because Jesus has gone there for us. The wrath of God is fully satisfied upon his son. There's no wrath left for you. I began this sermon by saying that I was tempted to emphasize the physical tortures of Jesus' death. But ultimately, Good Friday is not about us looking at Jesus and having pity on Jesus. And that's what all the movies try to do. They try to evoke feelings of remorse and sorrow for Jesus Ultimately, Good Friday is not about us pitying Jesus, but it's about Jesus pitying us. And that is what makes Good Friday so good. So good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is only because of your Son that we can come before you now that we can be accepted by you, that we are adopted as your children, and that you promise that you will never forget, you will never forsake, you will never leave us. We thank you for that comfort. And even on this Friday, we can celebrate, we can hope, because it is good. Thank you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.